0: The strange but true story featured on this podcast contains details some people may find unsettling. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Chiaz Samuel and things are about to get weird. Hello, hello! Thank you so much for being here today for another episode of Things Are About To Get Weird. Apologies for the slight delay in getting this episode live. I really do appreciate your patience. It was one of those things where a dozen different circumstances meant that it was impossible to record last week. But we're here now, so it's all good. Other than the fact I have a cold, which I'm sure you can tell in my voice. So please do bear with me on that. I was desperate to get this episode recorded for you and live on Wednesday. So this is what we're working with. On a more positive note though, any audio geeks amongst you might notice a slight change in our sound quality today. And that's because my amazing husband surprised me with the Shure SM7B mic a few days ago. So I'm getting to grips with it and absolutely loving it. And hopefully it will make my whole recording and editing process so much better. I was really battling with my Blue Yeti X mic so fingers crossed. Anyway, all of that said, let's get into the real reason we're here. So it is September, which in my book is the official start of spooky season. I was just about to say, you may disagree with me and that's okay, but let's be honest. I think if you're listening to this podcast, you probably have a spooky little heart like me and are fully on board with my logic. So, to mark the start of the greatest season of all, I'm going to be telling you about something I've wanted to talk about here since day one, and that is the Pendle Witch Trials, which saw 12 people from the same community accused of witchcraft within weeks of one another. If you're from the northwest of England, like me, I'm sure the existence of these stories will be at least vaguely familiar to you, as they concern events which took place in the county of Lancashire. They've been the subject of numerous books and films over the years, and although hundreds of years have passed since the Pendle Witch Trials, they are still talked about and referenced often to this day, and for good reason, because the circumstances that led up to the trials were fascinating. So without further delay, join me as we head all the way back to 1612. Would you believe me if I told you that the backstory to the Pendle Witch Trials involves the kind of interpersonal drama you'd expect to find in a modern-day soap opera? Actually, scratch that. It truly could be its own entire series, which would, of course, be set in the area surrounding Lancashire's Pendle Hill. It's a stunning part of the country, with villages and small towns nestled amongst the green fields. But its beauty comes second only to its dark and infamous history. And around Pendle Hill in the early 17th century lived the people who would become the first key protagonists in this story. Two elderly ladies from rival families. Elizabeth Southerns, who was known as Old Demdike, and Anne Whittle, known as Mother Chattox. It's said that their feud had started around a decade earlier, and is thought to have stemmed from an incident where members of Mother Chattox's family were said to have stolen a sum of money from the home of old Demdike's family. But it's also heavily suggested that another key reason for their rivalry was the fact that both women were known locally as healers. Essentially, Another way of saying that they dabbled in magic, and they'd often be competing for business. Business which, as I'm sure you can imagine, was a pretty dangerous thing to be involved with at this point in history. You see, the topic of witchcraft had been a raging religious and political issue for a sizable portion of the recently ended Tudor period. I could honestly dedicate an entire episode to the ins and outs of it all. But for the sake of focusing on the Pendle witches today, I'll keep this bit of context as concise as possible. I'll also just focus on England because that's where our story is set. In 1541, Henry VIII was the first monarch to formally declare that witchcraft was a crime punishable by death. This was repealed in 1547, but was later reinstated by Queen Elizabeth I in 1562, although her act was slightly more lenient when it came to the death penalty, because this could only be handed down if harm was perceived to have been caused by the person accused of witchcraft. Still bonkers in my view, but welcome to English history. Then we get to the part most relevant to this story, because as the Tudor period ended and James I succeeded Elizabeth and took the English throne in 1603, he brought his intense fascination with witchcraft with him. A few years earlier, he'd written a book entitled Demonology, which made his unfavourable view on both the practitioners and supporters of witchcraft known. Unsurprisingly, the witchcraft acts he brought in in 1604 was even more robust than the ones before it, and really added to the unease and suspicion that ordinary people throughout the country had about those they thought could be involved in witchcraft. That was such a stripped-down history lesson, but hopefully it provided some useful background as we continue this tale, so back to Lancashire we go. Now, I've already introduced you to old Demdike and Mother Chattox, but it's time to bring in the person who's often written about as though she was the instigator of events to come. But in reality, she was far more a victim of the times she lived in. 19-year-old Allison Device, that's Allison with a Z, was one of old Demdike's granddaughters, and, like most of the rest of her family, she was described as a vagrant and a beggar. She was unmarried, which, given her financial status and social standing, already put her in a precarious category. I'm sure this goes without saying, but this period in history was incredibly misogynistic. Women were viewed as little more than helpers to men and vessels for bearing children. Add on top of this that her grandmother was a long-suspected witch who was viewed as a, quote, cunning woman and that her family were associated with being petty criminals she was already at a major disadvantage especially when it came to members of the public who felt they'd been given a royal blessing to become amateur witch hunters and on the 21st of march 1612 these factors would come together to spell disaster for Alison. On this day, she encountered a peddler or travelling salesman named John Law. He was selling metal pins, which were items thought to not only be used for practical purposes, but in certain magical rituals too. It's unclear whether Alison tried to buy some of these pins from him, or whether she came across as begging for them free of charge. But regardless, John Law decided not to sell them to her. It's possible that the quantity she required was too small for him to bother with unpacking the goods, but whatever the reason was, Alison was not happy. Some accounts say that she cursed John, and others imply that she let her irritation be known in a less sinister manner. But we do know that they parted under fairly unfriendly circumstances. After they went their separate ways, John Law started to feel unwell. After staggering to the nearest inn, he collapsed and suffered what we know today was likely a stroke. But despite not having the advantages of modern medicine, John pulled through and recovered, and the only thing on his mind was revenge. He was convinced that Alison Device had caused his collapse, and went to Pendle's Justice of the Peace, Roger Noel, to formally accuse her of witchcraft. And it was this one brief meeting that would result in disaster for not one but two Pendle families, not to mention a number of their friends and supporters. Roger Noel immediately took John Law's word very seriously indeed, and by the 30th of March, he had summoned not only Alison, but her brother James and mother Elizabeth, To appear before him It's hard to imagine exactly how terrifying this prospect must have been If you were living in a country where the king himself Was obsessed with the idea of finding and punishing witches And you're a virtually penniless single woman in a rural community Where your grandmother makes her living as a magical healer The outlook must have appeared very bleak Then, in addition to this, having to deal with your mother and brother being dragged into it, Poor Alison must have been losing her mind with anxiety, which could help to explain what took place next. When the trio went up before the Justice of the Peace, Alison ended up confessing to cursing John Law. She essentially admitted that she had sold her soul to the devil and spoke of her familiar, which was a large black dog in this case and it seems that whatever had compelled Alison to be so forthcoming with information was contagious, because her brother was the next one to chime in. James decided to kick his sister while she was down, by revealing that she had previously cursed a child who lived in their village. Whether this was to shift focus away from himself or align himself far more with the witch hunters than the members of his family suspected of practicing dark magic, we don't know. But I would guess it was probably a combination of the two. But he wasn't the only one. Their mother, Elizabeth, then began speaking about how her own mother, Old Demdike, had an odd marking on her body where she suspected the devil had sucked her blood. Alison joined in on these new accusations being levelled at her grandmother, saying that she had bewitched a cow belonging to a local farmer to death. But not content with throwing her own family to the wolves, she then grasped the opportunity to seek revenge on their biggest rivals, the Chattoxes. Allison declared that the prior theft incident wasn't the only reason they were locked into a feud with their neighbours. She told Roger Noel that on his deathbed... Her father had confided in her that a member of the Chattuck's family had cursed him after he had refused to hand over money when they tried to extort him. Alison also directly accused Mother Chattuck's of killing a further three people using witchcraft, and it appears that Roger Noel had heard more than enough to warrant making some new arrests. Old Demdike, Mother Chattox and Chattox's daughter, Anne Redfern, were all taken into custody. And much like Alison, they began talking almost immediately. Now, bear in mind that the two matriarchs of the family were believed to be in their 80s and really quite frail by all accounts. God knows how they felt being hauled in front of a law enforcer and accused of a crime punishable by death but once they were standing in front of Roger Nowell, it took no time at all for the two elderly women to both confess to making deals with the devil. And in doing so, they helped to seal not only their own fates, but that of Mother Chattox’s daughter, Anne, too. So, after these first rounds of arrests, a total of four of the accused were sent to Lancaster Jail. Old Demdike, Mother Chattox, Anne, and of course, Alison. And at this point, most sources say the same thing, that this story could have easily ended here, and that perhaps the tale of the Pendle witches would have been not only much shorter, but much less deadly too. But alas, things were about to get so much worse for a number of those close to the two families, and it was all down to one simple decision taken by Alison's mother Elizabeth and brother James. After the arrest, they made it known that they were going to hold a meeting at their home, Malkin Tower, on Good Friday, which fell on the 10th of April that year. Now, the purpose of this meeting really varies depending on who you ask. Whilst some say that it was called to inform family and friends of the current plight facing the four accused women and discuss what to do next to help them, others describe it as a witch's coven. We don't have a huge amount of information about what exactly happened at the meeting, other than that James was thought to have stolen a sheep in order to feed those attending, but we know a lot more about the consequences of this gathering. Soon after the meeting had taken place, word of the event reached the ears of none other than the Justice of the Peace, Roger Nowell. And at this point... Noel's utter contempt for those thought to be engaging in anything remotely related to witchcraft was raging, and he set about collecting every bit of information about the gathering that he could Apparently, a local constable had alerted him to the goings-on at Malkin Tower, which had happened to take place when the majority of the other members of the community were at church, like the, quote, good citizens they were expected to be. And Noel was having none of it. He went on a mission to hunt down each and every person who had been in attendance and went on to arrest almost all of them eight people in total. They were Elizabeth and James Device, plus their acquaintances, Alice Gray, Jane and John Bullcock, Alice Nutter, Jeanette Preston, and Catherine Hewitt. All of them were sent to Lancaster Jail to await trial on suspicion of witchcraft, apart from Jeanette Preston, who was committed to York Jail. Now, before I tell you about the trials, it's important to understand the vastly different way that the criminal justice system worked back in the 17th century. Whereas today, trials are held on a case-by-case basis, back then they were much less frequent, and when they rolled around, everyone being held in a jail would be tried at once. It sounds absolutely bizarre to our modern ears, but then again, so does almost everything else in this story. The other thing that I wanted to point out in this case is that when we talk about the Pendle witch trials, it didn't just involve the group of 12 we've already heard about. The 12 people we've been talking about today were known as the Witches of Pendle Forest. But for the purposes of their trial, they were bundled in with eight others from neighbouring communities also accused of witchcraft. Amongst this smaller group was a trio of women known as the Psalmsbury Witches who I could easily dedicate a whole episode to. But for the sake of staying on track, I'll keep focusing on The Twelve Witches of Pendle Forest for now. So, as I mentioned, one of the accused, Jeanette Preston, was sent to prison in York to await trial, and her hearing actually took place first, on the 27th of July 1612. It was alleged that she had attended the meeting at Malkin's Tower just days after being acquitted of the murder of her former boss, which she was accused of carrying out via witchcraft. When it was found that she had been at the Malkin Tower meeting, I'm sure Noel jumped at the chance to send her to trial again, and because she technically resided in Yorkshire, she was sent to York jail. On this occasion, luck was not on Jeanette Preston's side. She was the first of the Pendle witches to be found guilty, and she was sentenced to death by hanging. Her execution was carried out almost straight away on the 29th of July on the land where the York racecourse is now situated. Whether or not word of Jeanette Preston's fate ever reached the eleven of her co accused being held back in Lancaster, we don't know. But just the next month, their hearings were finally scheduled to begin. However, not all 11 would live to attend their day in court. Old Demdike, who, as I mentioned, was elderly and in poor health, suffered badly in the terrible conditions in the prison dungeon. She passed away before the trial began, Although, by all accounts, she had been more than happy to proudly proclaim herself as a witch before she died. So, it's likely that she would have been executed shortly after had she lived. For the remaining 10 members of the group, the dates that would determine their fates, were set as the 18th and 19th of August. Now, again, I'm sure it will come as no surprise at all, given the time period in history, that religion was set to play a huge role in the prosecution of at least some of the accused, most notably Alice Nutter and the co-defendants who were related to her, which I think were Jane and John Bullcock and Catherine Hewitt, but it's sometimes tricky to confirm some details like these. Alice was actually from a respected landowning family, who were viewed in a much different way by society than the Demdike and Chattoxes. but they were Catholic. One of Alice's descendants, Colin Nutter, actually spoke to the BBC about his views on Noel's arrest of Alice and her family members, saying, At that time, they were a strong Catholic family. I think he thought he would curry favour with the king and the powers that be if he was catching Catholics as well. She was used as a pawn for his own ends, really. So, as the trial began, things were already looking grim for them. And for the rest of the accused, a disturbing twist in this tale was about to unfold that really feels like the stuff of nightmares. As the group, including Alison, her mother Elizabeth and brother James, were standing in court, a witness was brought in which caused Elizabeth to scream out with anguish her nine-year-old daughter, Alison and James's sister, Jeanette Device. Because Jeanette had been present at the Malkin Tower meeting, as it was her home, she was brought in to testify against her entire immediate family. Why were the authorities so keen to involve her, you ask? Well, remember the book written by James I, Demonology? In it, he wrote, quote, children, women and liars, can be witnesses over high treason against God. Roger Noel felt that this gave him the king's blessing to call a child witness, and could act as another factor which would win him favour with the monarch, as it made him look like he followed the king's every word. Over the course of the two-day trial, Jeanette gave evidence that completely condemned most of those involved. In fact, when she first entered the courtroom and heard her mother cry out, her reaction was to climb up on a table and declare that Elizabeth was indeed a witch. Do keep in mind that Jeanette was just nine years of age. I dread to think about the circumstances that led to her testifying against basically all of her loved ones. Was she threatened with arrest and execution herself? Was she brainwashed by the authorities to believe her family really were evil? Was force used against her to make her speak up? The truth behind this is unknown, but what is plainly written throughout the history books is what her words meant for her family. Even though many of them retracted their prior confessions, it didn't count for anything in the end, as tragically, all of the accused witches of Pendle Forest, except for Alice Grey, were found guilty. In total, they were blamed for the murders of 16 people through methods related to dark magic. There is a lot more information available about exactly what all of their individual charges entailed and who they were accused of killing, but there are already so many names in this story and I still have a few interesting turns left to explore, so I won't dive into all of that today. What I will say is that in pretty much all of the cases, there seems to be no tangible proof of any wrongdoing by the defendants. But I guess that's part of what makes witch trials in general so completely unfathomable. The authorities' suspicions of the accused were born out of nothing more than paranoia and fear and panic. Not to mention the serious and deep-rooted issues surrounding religion, class and misogyny. However, to the justice of the peace, none of this mattered. For the ten witches of Pendle Forest that had been found guilty, this verdict spelt the end. The next day, on the 20th of August, 1612, they were all executed by hanging at Gallows Hill in Lancaster. If, like me, one of your first questions after hearing this is, well, what happened to Jeanette? I'm afraid her story doesn't have a happy ending and is yet another awful twist in this tale. Firstly, her legacy as a child witness who helped to secure the convictions of so many people set an unfortunate precedent not just in England but around the world. The main reason that we know so much about the Pendle Witch Trials is because the clerk of the court at the trials, Thomas Potts, recorded a huge number of the details in a book entitled The Wonderful Discovery of Witches in the County of Lancaster. And this book, along with other documents relating to the Pendle trials, helped to form a handbook that was distributed to magistrates, including those in America. A key point made in the handbook is that child witnesses appeared to be very effective when trying to determine the guilt of someone accused of witchcraft. And so this practice became more commonly accepted. One of the most notable results of this was at the infamous Salem Witch Trials in 1692. In that instance, 19 people in total were executed by hanging after being convicted of being witches. And who provided the vast majority of the evidence that helped achieve this outcome? Children. I told you it was awful. It really is dire to think about. And things only got worse for Jeanette herself too. Just over 20 years after the Pendle witch trials, she was doomed to suffer the consequences of the precedent she helped to set after she was accused of witchcraft herself, along with 16 others by a 10-year-old boy. By this point, there had been a slight shift and judges were less inclined to denounce someone as a witch without more concrete proof. Long story short, Jeanette was initially found guilty before she was acquitted after the 10-year-old admitted he made up the accusations after hearing tales about the Pendle witches. But as I alluded to, Jeanette was not destined to live out a peaceful life. She had been held in Lancaster Castle, and even after her acquittal, she wasn't allowed to leave until she'd paid for the food and accommodation she'd received whilst awaiting trial. Sadly, it doesn't appear that she was able to do this, and it's widely believed that she may have remained locked up indefinitely. To me, the story of the Pendle Witch Trials is nothing short of tragic. Do I believe that some of the accused, the two matriarchs and Alison Device in particular, were witches? They could well have been. Do I believe that this meant they were responsible for the deaths of 16 people? Of course not. I think the families probably did dabble in alternative healings and rituals and things that to us in the 21st century would be seen as spiritual and open-minded and even whimsical. Maybe not these things exactly but along the lines of crystals and tarot cards. Even if we get really sceptical and accept the suggestion that they were only doing it to make money, they would be no worse than a seaside fortune teller in a booth, giving each and every tourist the same vague information and charging them for the privilege. I do share that belief that those accused in the Pendle witch trials were little more than pawns. By proclaiming that someone deemed undesirable through their social standing, profession or religious beliefs was a witch, those in power were not only providing neat explanations for, say, someone collapsing due to ill health, but they were making themselves look good in the eyes of their superiors. There's a reason that even today witch hunts are called witch hunts, because they usually take place when one group latches onto a certain popular idea and uses it to vilify another group. Even though similar social, economic and political situations existed in counties other than Lancashire back in the 1600s, thanks in part to the Pendle Witch Trials, the county ended up accounting for a disproportionately large percentage of all witchcraft-related executions in England at the time. To this day, people are still campaigning for the Pendle Witches to be officially pardoned. And although on a couple of occasions in modern times the campaigns have gained significant momentum, all of the convictions do still stand, at the time of me recording this anyway. Personally, I would love to see these pardons happen. I think it would be a welcome gesture." But until that time comes, I think there are still valuable lessons that can be learned from the witch trials even to this day. The importance of evidence, for one, especially in our age of social media, where unfounded opinions are presented as facts every second of the day. I think because the witch trials happened so long ago, we can tend to think of them as more like folk tales, but the people involved were as real as you and I. Witches or not, those executed between the 15th and 18th centuries deserved a fate so much better than what they were handed. Goodness me, what a tale. I hope you learned something new in this episode. I know I found out so many details I'd never heard before when I was doing my research. Just one thing to add, As with all stories that took place a very long time ago, some sources do tend to differ on a few details. For example, in this case, you'll occasionally read something which notes an additional person as an official member of the Witches of Pendle Forest group. So I've done my very best to be as accurate as possible but I think some debates do still go on about the finer details. Anyway, before I give you all the info on how to get in touch and share your thoughts on this story, it's time for one of my favourite parts of any episode. Here's Weird Media. I guess I'm not technically cheating with today's recommendation because there are some true crime elements within it, but I'm definitely pushing the boundaries. However, it's completely worth it because I have an absolute gem of a TV show to tell you about today. For weeks and weeks, my mum kept telling me to watch this BBC series that she'd become obsessed with. She said it was my exact sense of humour and that I would love it. And I kept telling her that I would add it to the list, but we all know there is no list and that I would inevitably forget. But a few days ago, the name of the show suddenly popped into my head and I was like, right, it's time, I'm going in. And I'm so glad I did. The show is called The Power of Parker and it's a genuine treat from start to finish. First of all, the cast is perfection. Conleth Hill plays the male lead, so you already know we're off to a great start. And then you have Sean Gibson as the other main character with Rosie Cavaliero in a key role too. So it's just a recipe for comedy gold. Sean Gibson actually co-wrote the series, and it's set in my original home borough of Stockport, Greater Manchester, in November of 1990, which is the month before I was born, which I thought was a fun coincidence. It centres around a man called Martin Parker, who owns an electrical goods shop and whose life is pretty complicated all by his own doing. He has a wife and he also has a girlfriend. So he's essentially living a double life, at least from his wife's perspective. What we see in the show is the culmination of 25 years of bad decisions and how they all start to come to a head at the same time and it is fantastic. It's so funny, every single character is beautifully written and portrayed and it's the kind of show where some of the most hilarious moments come from dialogue that you might miss if you weren't paying attention. Even the most subtle lines are delivered incredibly well and I just didn't want it to end. I purposefully haven't told you much more about the plot because I don't want to ruin anything but if you're a fan of programs with that very northern sense of humor I guarantee you will love The Power of Parker. There are six episodes available on BBC iPlayer and if you check it out please do let me know what you think. Okie dokie some super quick shout outs for the sources which helped me put together my research today. First up, a BBC article on the Pendle Witches from August 2011 by Francis Cronin. We had a piece on historic-uk.com by writer Ellen Castillo, which was fantastic. An article from Lanx Live by Dominic Moffat from October 2022, which was so helpful. A piece in the Retrospect Journal by Marnie Camping-Harris, which was also great. The website pendlewitches.co.uk was useful for getting a lot of the facts straight. And finally, there was a fab article on historycollection.com by Natasha Sheldon from November 2017. I can't wait to hear your take on this story, so here's a quick reminder of all the ways you can get in touch. On Facebook, we have both a private discussion group and the main podcast page. If you search Things Are About To Get Weird over there, you'll find both of those. I would love you to join us on Instagram. Our handle is at thingsgetweirdpodcast. And on Twitter slash X, you can find us at about to get weird. Our email address is thingsgetweirdpodcast at gmail.com, and our Patreon and merch pages are linked in the show notes as always. A quick rating wherever you listen is always very much appreciated. And if you fancy clicking that follow button on your podcast player of choice, that's also super helpful. Thank you so much for being here today and for putting up with my voice. I know I don't sound great, but by our next episode, I promise I will sound back to normal. So until next time, take care of yourself and others and keep it weird but the good kind of weird.